0: Amen. If you would join me in Hebrews chapter 10, that's going to be our passage of scripture this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. Join me there in your Bible or in the Bible that is there in the pew. I was just recently listening to an interview. A man was talking about how he had sold his tech business. Um, he had built this company, this technological company, and because it was a technology company, his parents never really understood what it was that he did. He would try to tell them about this business and they were always confused. They really didn't understand what it was that he did. But the time came that he had built his company to this place where someone wanted to buy it and they bought the company from him for millions and millions of dollars. He was going to be a rich man, probably would never have to work, The rest of his life and so he called his parents to give them this great news that he's sold the company he has achieved his dream he's he's brought in millions of dollars and the first thing that his mother said to him was but will you still have health insurance And I laughed because for a lot of people, and specifically if you came up in a generation where like you knew you had a good job, if you had health insurance, that is like, that's the thing. Doesn't matter if you sold the company for millions and millions of dollars, do you still have good health insurance? For someone who's perhaps younger or from a different generation or a different background, they grew up in a family where that wasn't an emphasis, that might not seem as big of a deal. And I think what we're going to talk about this morning is similar. It has differing perspectives based on your social, racial, social, uh, economical, denominational background. Because there's a lot of differing ideas about church membership. What I hope to do this morning is not give us a denominational perspective of church membership, or a social perspective of church membership. I hope that we walk away from the gathering this morning with a biblical idea of church membership. And I think we can find that in Hebrews chapter 10. So look there with me. We're going to start reading in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things... "...can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continuously year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then why would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins." Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. And the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. Which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The writer of Hebrews here is speaking of Jesus coming to fulfill what all of the law and all of the ceremonies and all of the sacrifices in the Hebrew Old Testament laws could not accomplish that Jesus accomplishes them in himself. Verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. No more offering these regular offerings, constantly attempting to appease for sin. Christ has been offered once for all. Verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. One of the things that we did early on here in our pastorate at Chandler, not long after Nicole and I came to serve here at the church, is that with the help of others, we knocked on every door in Chandler with the hope of having spiritual conversations with the people of the town. Now, what we did in that effort did not specifically reach anyone. It wasn't that by going and knocking on all of these doors, suddenly everyone came to our church. But there was a benefit. And that many of those conversations that I had with the people of Chandler congealed in my mind, and I remember them to this day. It gave me a perspective on the people of Chandler, of the needs of Chandler. And the way that I have led and preached ever since has been shaped by that early connection with this town. One of the conversations that I can remember from that period of time was I introduced myself and I explained what it is that we were trying to do. And the man said, well, I'm a member of, and he named a nearby church that he was a member of. Now, knowing that you can attend a church, belong to a church, and not know Jesus, I wanted to shift the conversation from church attendance to, are you walking with Jesus And so I said this sentence, trying to transition from that into the heart of the matter. I said, well, I'm glad to know that you attend church, but, and I couldn't say anything else because he cut me off. And he said, I didn't say I go. I said, I'm a member. What he was telling me is I belong on the role of this church and have for years, but I haven't been there. And as I began to talk to him, I figured out that he hadn't been there in nearly a decade but he thought of himself as a member, as belonging to this church. At this point, I didn't recognize just how many differing ideas there are about church membership that I I do now. Today, it is incredibly common for churches that only have a few dozen people attending to have a few hundred people on their membership role. Right now, it's also very common that There are churches that have a few thousand in attendance and only a few dozen or hundred belong to any type of group or have a relationship with anyone who could hold them accountable and encourage them on in their Christian walk. Many of these churches don't even practice church membership. There are people who came to church when they were a child and because their parents joined the church, their name was added to the role. And even though they haven't been there since junior high, they're still listed as a member on some church membership role. I want to be clear that these are not biblical ideas about church membership. It's not what we are called to do. And it might be that you're here this morning and you think of yourself as a member of Faith Church because you attend regularly or because you give or because you volunteered in some fashion or because you've gone through growth track. I hope that by the end of this message, everybody is a little bit clear on what it means to be a member. But if you have not stood before our membership in a membership meeting like the one that is coming up on November 13th and been voted into the membership, you're not a member of Faith Church. There are places in our nation where everyone is considered Catholic because they live in a specific neighborhood. There are places in our nation where neighborhoods aren't called neighborhoods, but they're called parishes because that's the kind of the boundary that that Catholic church is is over. There are other nations where when you sign up, To pay your taxes, there is a place where you can designate a portion of your taxes to go to a specific church because by being a member or citizen of that country, you are a member of some church. There are nations where the churches are really well-funded and nobody attends because it's taken out of their paycheck. In all of these places, people might use the word member, but mean something completely different. Something else I encountered when I moved here to Chandler that I, I wasn't familiar with. I had never seen it before, and perhaps it's commonplace to you, and maybe it's become more commonplace in, in recent years. But something that would happen with children and teenagers that we were ministering to here at the church, they would call people mom. that wasn't their mom. Because they went over to that friend's house all the time. They started calling their friend's mom, mom. Because it was like they lived there because they could go in without knocking and they could open up the fridge, and so they called that person mom, and that's fine, but it was just confusing to me because I never knew who is your mom? <laughs> and I would say, I would say things to the students like, Oh, well, when your sister, and they'd be like, I don't have a sister, you know? They were using this term, and it was confusing to me because I was unfamiliar with this practice, and I had a different idea about Who you refer to as a mom. When we talk about church membership, people often get confused because we have differing ideas of what we mean when we say a member. Using the same words with different meanings. Same thing is true for the word church. And there are different uses for the word church in scripture. There are places where Jesus refers to the church. He says... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in that instance, Jesus is talking about all those who would put their faith and trust in him and be forgiven of their sins, past, present, future. Not just in that location, but around the world. And there are times when we talk about the church and we're referring to the global or universal church. So referring to everybody who puts their faith in Christ. But then there are times that we... Use the word church, and we're talking about our local church. This group of people that chooses to assemble together. And Jesus will build both, and the gates of hell will not prevail against either. But it's it's important that we know which one we're speaking of. When Paul would write letters in the New Testament, he's writing those to local churches with Local pastors and leaders who have local problems and sins within their local church. And those letters have application to the global church. And it's the reason we read them 2,000 years later. But we can only understand that application when we understand the context of the writing to that local particular specific church. One thing that becomes clear in reading Paul's letters to these local churches is that he's writing to groups of people that are exclusively made up of believers who are in covenant community. Believers who are in covenant community. Something that we regularly say here is that the church is not the building. And we say this often because our mission at Faith Church is that we are building the church our friends and neighbors will join and that our children will lead. And we want to clarify that we're not talking about the bricks and the floor joists and the drywall. We're talking about the people. And so the church is not the building. It's not this facility. It's not this address. It's this group of people. But what does it mean to be this group of people? Because you could be here this morning and it's your first time to ever set foot in here and you wouldn't tell anybody that Faith Church is your church or that you belong here. You're, you're just here checking it out. You want to make sure we're not crazy first before you associate with us. It could be that you're here and you have no desire to belong here. You're just here because your wife guilted you into being here, right? Or grandma made you come. Your parents pushed you into the car and drug you into the church building, right? You can be in here without being a part of this group. So where does the church begin? How do we know who is Faith Church? A few weeks ago in my message, I mentioned that there is a difference between attending a church and belonging to a church. And when I made that statement, it was it got a mixed reaction from you. There were some of you that said, some, amen. There were some of you that didn't really pay any attention. There were some of you that kind of looked back at me at a, with an inquisical well, look, what exactly do you mean? And so based on that, and my recognition that there are many different ideas of what it means to belong to a church, I felt it was important for us to discuss it this morning. There's much about church membership that could be said. And if you want to go further on these two ideas, there are two short books that I highly recommend that we will gladly give you a copy of. One is I Am a Church Member by Tom Rayner, And the second is Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman. They're both around 100 pages. They're easy reads. I think they'll be beneficial to you if you want to go deeper on this subject. And what I have to be careful of this morning is not to attempt to preach both of those books and everything that Hebrews has to say about membership, but just try to communicate to you what is helpful for us today. The author of Hebrews is making a point here in this chapter. And what he's doing is he's distinguishing the old way and the new way, the old covenant and the new covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the old temple and the new temple. He's talking about the way that the Hebrews, and this analogy fits, and it makes sense to them because he's writing to a group of Hebrews who have become Christians and face persecution. He's talking about the way that they used to worship when they would go to the temple that we read about in the Old Testament, where they would bring a lamb or a goat or a bull or a turtle dove to be sacrificed, to be killed, and that would be the offering for their sin. And they would have a moment when they would place their hand upon this animal and it was to signify their sins being transferred upon this animal and it dying to pay the penalty for their sins. The author of Hebrews is pointing out they have to do this constantly because they're constantly sinning. But Jesus comes and he establishes a new way. And this morning when you walked in the lobby, we do not have a a pen of sheep or goats that we're going to sacrifice later in the service because we don't offer them to pay for the penalty of our sins because Jesus Christ has taken the penalty for our sins. We're in this new way, in this new covenant The old temple had priests who offered the same sacrifices again and again and again. And he's he's drawing this contrast and it builds to this powerful crescendo in verse 11 when the passage says the old temple had these priests who did the same thing again and again. But Jesus has offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all. And now our sins are forgiven. What we have here is another picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ doing for us what we could not do for ourselves even if we followed all of the laws and all of the ceremonies and all of the sacrifices that are written about in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Way, Jesus has come and accomplished all of that for us. He's done what we could not do for ourselves. He's paid the penalty that we owe and given us the life that he offers. And then he follows this up by saying, this is the covenant that I will make With them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then in verse 17, he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What a beautiful thing. God had written down all of these laws and the people had added all of these things to it to try to to flesh it out and try to make it clear And they were constantly sinning and constantly falling short like you and I do. But Christ comes and he forgives our sins, remembers them no more. And now he writes his law in our hearts and in our minds. And the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us and shows us the way that we should go. And what he says here is that this is the covenant that he makes with us. This is that new covenant that replaces the old. Now, when you hear the word covenant, you might think contract. Because we're familiar with contracts. You sign them all the time. You probably don't read them, right? You you signed one the last time you did an update on your phone. It was probably 40 pages long. You said, accept, download it, yes. (laughs) Right? You buy a car. You get a credit card. You're agreeing to contracts all the time. And those contracts stipulate what each party has to do. And if one party fails to do their part, you can back out. God doesn't make a contract with us. He makes a covenant with us. And the covenant stipulates what I will do regardless. I will do my part regardless of what you will. I'll be honest, it kind of feels like some of the contracts that I've signed with at t have been like that. i got to pay them no matter what they do. The covenant that Christ makes with us is that he will write his law upon our hearts and minds. That he will fill us with the Spirit who will put the law in us. And that he will remember our sins no more. And we don't have to live our lives hoping that we fulfill our end of the bargain because Christ has made a covenant with us. He does his part. And it's based upon his faithfulness, and not mine. Thank the Lord. So one day I'll stand before God and I won't say, well, I did this, this, and this. I will say he did that. It's not about what I am doing. It is what he has already done. And so instead of the law being out here and pushed upon me, instead of the law being written on tablets and in pages and then pushed upon me, the Holy Spirit is writing it within me and instead of extrinsic motivation, it's this intrinsic, it's this thing that I desire to do, it's this thing that God is doing in my heart that I want to do the right thing, that I desire to please Him. Paul would later, he would write, the thing I I don't want to do, I find myself doing He's saying, I I still mess up, and and I'm imperfect, and I sin, but I don't want to do that. And it grieves my heart when I do those things. It's that intrinsic, the Spirit writing a law upon my heart, I want to please God. I want to live in a way that pleases Him. And so since God is doing this, and since He's never let us down, when this fails to work, it's it's not on Him. It's on us. He's done his part. And it's this idea that the author is running with when he comes to verses 19 to 23. God has done all of this for us. He writes this law upon our hearts. He has offered this one sacrifice for all time. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated For us, through the veil, that is his flesh. He once again gives us another little bit of a picture of the gospel. He's using some wordplay here. He's spoken of the new covenant. He's spoken of the new priesthood. He's spoken of the the New Testament versus the old. And he says here, in this new way, we have been given access to the holiest. In the temple, the old temple, there was a place called the holiest of holies. No one was to go there. It was veiled off like we sang about earlier, it's veiled off and only a priest who had gone through several ceremonial cleansings could enter only at the right time. The Bible tells us that when Christ is crucified on the cross, that this veil is torn in two and it is Christ welcoming us with open arms into God's presence. Because of this new covenant, because of this thing that God has done, the author of Hebrews says, we can enter boldly before God. So let us enter boldly through the veil, through this new way that is his flesh because he made the way himself on the cross. Let us enter. Verse 21, he goes on to say, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with the water of And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It's not based on us. It's on him. He's done it for us. He's not going to drop the ball. He's made the way for us. And all of this powerful stuff that is here in Hebrews chapter 10 is what leads up to verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Verses 24 and 25 don't sit out there on their own. They're connected to all of this that he's been writing about. I don't know about you, but I want verses 1 to 23. I want this new way. I want this new covenant. I want this once and for all sacrifice for sins. I want this law written upon my heart. All of that leads into 24 and 25. It says, let's think about one another. Consider one another how to stir up one another. God is so good. And all that he's done, I'm not. You know what I need? I need help to steward this wonderful thing that he's done for me. Uh, Just recently here in Evansville, we had the fall festival. In addition to all of the greasy food and the rides, something that they've added recently is the fall festival Westside Nut Club Half Pot. And it has taken our community by storm, right? It is just a big, big deal. And this past year, it got up to 1.6 million. That means that the winner is going to get right at $800,000. And just recently, they had drawn the number and that person came forward and they claimed the winnings but we don't know who they are because they want to remain anonymous. And you know what? I get it, right? If I want it, maybe I did. I'm going to remain anonymous, <laughs> right? why, why does he want to remain anonymous? Why does he want to remain anonymous? Because he knows, or she knows, that if they're not anonymous, suddenly they'll have friends and family members they've never heard of, right? Everybody want a piece of this thing. So it makes sense to remain anonymous, but I hope, I hope that in their anonymity, they don't push away anyone that can give them some advice. I hope that they don't squander that $800,000 in some very foolish ways because they don't have anyone guiding them on how to avoid giving 90% of it to Uncle Sam or putting it in some horrible investment, right? Hopefully there's some people around. Hopefully they go to somebody who has some financial sense or an attorney or someone who can show them how to be a good steward of this thing that has been plopped in their lap. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is God has done this wonderful thing and he has just poured this incredible blessing upon us, something that is far greater than any half pot winnings. And we need one another to encourage one another to not squander this wonderful thing that God has given us. Why, why, why does it matter that you belong to a church? Because what God has given you is a beautiful, amazing, wonderful gift and let's not squander it. We need the church so that we don't squander what God has given us, so we don't make reckless choices with what God has made available to us. And so this passage says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And a lot of times people read this and they think the gathering, they're thinking of don't forsake Sunday morning, and I think that's an appropriate application. But I think if I could really make an argument that the word assembled here is more than getting together. How many of you ever bought a toy for your kid or your wife's bought a piece of furniture and the pieces, they're all together, but they're not assembled. And you got an afternoon or two of work, right? Because together is different than assembled. All the pieces might be there, but they're not assembled. And this this passage, this word it uses, this word is used several other places and it's often referred to picking out the fruit or gathering together the sticks that would be woven together, that would be bound together. We, We don't just need to be together. We need to be woven together. Assembled together. There needs to be some functioning here. Bundled together, twisted together, picked out, called out, separated out. I think that God has poured out an amazing blessing upon your life. I think that he has made a grace available to you that is without compare. And I think that the very best stewardship of that gift that he has given you is lived out in the accountability and community of a local church. And I think that if you read the New Testament, you don't see anybody living it out any other way. We're not given any example of anyone living the Christian life without close community and accountability. There are no Lone Ranger Christians in the scriptures. I think the best way to steward and to live out this blessing that God has poured upon you is in close community and accountability in a local church. And that means not just attending, but belonging. And some of you, you're not ready for membership yet, but you need to belong. You need to be in a group. You need to serve on a team. You need to have some relationships. You need to have some people in your life who can say, hey, What's going on? Hey, you, you said this, but now you're living that. What's going on? God's writing God's the law upon your heart. I want to see that lived out. We all need that. And I think the best, the best expression of this is not just attending on Sunday morning and growing in a group, serving on a team, but placing yourself under the accountability that comes with membership. That's what membership is. Membership is saying, I am opening myself up to accountability. Listen, there are a lot of bad reasons to join church. It would be be the wrong choice to join a church to save you. I I can't save you. This church can't save you. Only Jesus can do that. So if, if you're like, man, I probably should join the church so that I'm a Christian. That's not how it works. We can't save you. And if you are a member of a church, that doesn't mean that you are you have a home in heaven. So don't join a church to get saved. That, Jesus handles that part. Then we affirm it. Second, don't, don't join a church to make someone else happy. Listen, if you are tempted to join the church to make grandma happy or your wife happy or your husband happy or to make Pastor Daniel happy, don't do it. Because it's not going to make it easier to keep people happy. It's only going to make it harder. Because membership is accountability. You're not going to get us off your back by joining the church. You're going to open yourself up to more accountability. Don't join it to save you. Don't join it to make someone happy. And then don't join it for privileges. Listen, there are are some fringe benefits to being a member here. You can vote in business meetings. Super exciting stuff. Um, (laughs) There's positions you can serve in that only members can serve in. Um, and, and I've known people that have joined a church because they thought it was beautiful and they wanted to get married there. That doesn't happen here. <laughs> um, but joining to gain those privileges is not, it's not the right idea. Because membership is not about privileges. It's way more about responsibility than it is about privileges. You say, well, man, you're quite the salesman on joining a church. You give me all the reasons not to join. Let me give you four good reasons, and I'm done. Join for the assurance of your salvation. The church can't save you, but we recognize the work of the Spirit in your life, and we affirm it. Jonathan Lehman, in his book that I mentioned earlier, Church Membership, he talks about how churches are like embassies. We're in this this world. We're, We're God's kingdom in this broken world, And while we can't make you a U.S. citizen, you come to us, you come to the embassy, the embassy, say, oh, you lost your passport. We can confirm that you are a U.S. citizen. I can't make you a citizen of heaven, but I can affirm that Jesus has. And when you are giving yourself to be accountable to a church, to brothers and sisters who see the work of the Spirit in your life, that he is writing the law of God on your heart and mind, it gives you assurance that you are a believer. One, for assurance. Two, for the sake of reaching the world. We can accomplish more in tandem than we can alone. Did you know that if you, if you team up a pair of mules, if one can pull 400 pounds, the other one can pull 400 pounds, if you put them together, they pull more than 800 pounds? They pull 1,000 pounds. They can do more in tandem than they can do alone. This community is full of people who don't know Jesus. And we can do more in tandem to reach them. Joining a church is signing up for the mission of that church. And the vision of this church, the mission of this church is to build the church. Our friends and neighbors will join and becoming a member here is formally submitting to and joining on with that mission. Join for the assurance. Join for the sake of reaching the world. Join for the edification of the church. The hauling that we can do as a team not only benefits those that we're trying to reach, it benefits those who are pulling. You ever tried to move something on your own that you really shouldn't be moving on your own? Right? In some of your eyes, I saw back pain in the moment that I said that, right? Right? <laughs> It's for your health and benefit. Not just is it more productive, it's healthier and safer. It's more encouraging. And if there is a resistance in you because you're afraid you're going to lose something, friend, let me tell you, you're, you're, you're looking at the wrong things. Because the things that you gain far outweigh the things that you set aside. Just like any other commitment. You know, when someone says, you know, hey, listen, I love this person, but I don't see why we needed, like, putting labels on it. Why do we need a piece of paper that says that we really love one another, right? That's red flags for me. Because resistance to formal commitment makes me question the authenticity of the compassion. I love you, I'm willing to commit to you. Love does not fear commitment. Self-centeredness fears commitment. And if you love me, you love the brethren, which Jesus tells us, Scripture tells us, that that is a sign, a marker, that we are truly saved. He says the world will know you by your love for one another. If you love the brethren, you'll want to be committed to the brethren. For assurance, for the sake of reaching the world, for the edification of the church, and lastly, for the glory of God. When Christians act as they ought to act, we give God glory. And church membership gives us the opportunity to hold one another accountable, to live as we ought to live, and to give God glory. Look down at verse 33. He's talking about, listen, you've experienced some of this. You've you've faced some hardship. He says in verse 33, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by the reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. He says, you've lived out some hardship and you've been made a spectacle of. You've been ridiculed. You've been publicly mocked for your faith. And you've also identified with and encouraged those who have been publicly ridiculed and mocked for their faith. And it's interesting that he uses the word spectacle here. That's that's our our word in the New King James. In the Old King James, it's a gazing stock. Probably none of us has said gazing stock this past week. But what it means is it's something everybody stares at, everybody looks at. And the original word is where we get our word theater it's a production. And these Hebrews, they had gone through it. They had been through some hardships. This letter is written to them because they had faced persecution. And he says, People have seen it. You know what the Bible tells us about the Old Temple? The Bible tells us that the Old Temple was to be a witness to the nations of the glory and splendor of God. And that those sacrifices were to be a visual demonstration. Of sins being forgiven. And Christ. Did away with that old covenant. And he did away with that old temple. And he has a new one. And it's made out of the people of God. And when the people of God. Go through the hardships of this life. And adversity. And are transformed to become more and more like Jesus. It is a spectacle. To the world. To show his glory and splendor. Let me tell you, there is nothing more beautiful than watching a saint go through it and have the peace and love of God. And when we become members, when we belong, we are committing ourselves to show the glory of God to a lost world. You know what? Our world doesn't know what Christians are. The reason the world is turned off by the church and by Christians is because they don't know any any real ones. They they know some people who claim to be Christians. They know some people who were on some membership role at a church they haven't been to in years. They know some people that claim the name of Jesus but don't live out any of his teachings. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about accountability to live out what the Holy Spirit is writing upon our hearts and minds so that we are transformed, we are different than we used to be, and we're not a spectacle because we're so great. We're a spectacle because He's so great. He is so good. And our very lives begin to speak the name of Jesus. Not us. Him. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, Lord, I pray that we would be moved this morning by what you have done for us in this new covenant. God, we, we, we thank you that you have taken the sins upon yourself, that you in your flesh have made a new way, that we are able to enter into your presence, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done for us. Our Lord, I ask that we would be transformed, that you would write your law upon our hearts and minds. We would be different. And that we would be a spectacle to the world, not because we are great, but because you have done something with our, our brokenness. Because you have done something in spite of us. May our very lives be a witness. To your power and glory, may our church be a city set upon a hill, living out your commands, following you. May we be a people that hold one another to account, not out of self-righteousness, not out of judgment, but as for a desire for the glory and fame of your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, just remain in this spirit and posture of prayer as they lead us. If God's working in your heart, respond to him.